Welcome to episode 35 of Mike's Notes. Today, talking about lessons learned from Bill Belichick. I was looking through my notes one day and it led me to the book, The Education of a Coach by David Halberstam. And Halberstam's book about Bill Belichick is really interesting because unlike some other sports books, it really dives into the process that drove Belichick. It looked into his thinking and his actions and his inspirations to develop this semi-full picture of what has led to Belichick's success, what has made him successful, what are the things that he's done, what are the influences that he's had, what are the things that he's avoided in his past and in his journey that has brought him so many Super Bowl championships. And as I was taking notes, I ended up writing down much more than I thought. So I thought we would do a podcast episode about a few things I learned from Bill Belichick via David Halberstam. One. The initial thing that brought me to revisit this book that I had already read was the idea of red teaming and figuring out what red teaming is, what red teaming means, and how it can benefit your organization. And in my index to this book, I noted that there was a lot of red teaming involved in this book. Red teaming is the idea of taking an outside perspective of your own situation and trying to figure out where it has weak points. Two things that are critical for red teaming is an original mind and an encyclopedic knowledge. So you have to be able to, one, think outside the box, and two, you have to know how things have been done before, what were the outcomes of those things, and how did they work. Part of the reason that Belichick has succeeded with this is that he's had a partner named Ernie Adams this whole time. Adams is a real recluse. He's hard to find information on if you search for him online. There's one short YouTube video, but he has a decent role in the Halberstam book because he talked in interviews about it. This is what Halberstam writes about um, working with Belichick. Quote, the answer, of course, was that Ernie Adams was Belichick's Belichick the film master's master of film. He was supremely knowledgeable about the history of the game. No play was ever forgotten, and his brain was like a little football computer, always clicking away, remembering which defense had stopped which offense and who the coaches and the players had been. He was in a class with his boss and breaking down film and finding little things that no one else saw and just as good at understanding the conceptual process that drove another team. He was, for a coach with so cerebral an approach to the game, a comforting figure since he shared Belichick's view and his passion. He was one of the few men that Bill Belichick liked to test his own view of a game against, trusting completely Adams' truly original mind and his encyclopedic knowledge of the game. If they differed in a strategy, if they came out on different sides, which happened rarely, then Belichick took Adams' dissent seriously. So um, what Haberstam has introduced us here is this idea of red teaming, that you need to have a different point of view. You need to have an outside point of view because you will not see all the facts of a situation. You will be blinded because of momentum. You will be blinded because of biases. You have all sorts of blinders and restrictions on your view that you often need other people to test against. This was a common situation for Belichick, and it was something that he had really succeeded in doing before. 
Part of the reason he had this success was because early in his career, Belichick was tossed around a little bit. He didn't have a home. He wasn't always known as this defensive mastermind, uh, but he built up skills understanding the offensive part of the game as well as the defensive part of the game to give him a really clear, a really um, accurate view of what was happening. Part of that uh, learning occurred when he was with the Detroit Lions, and he befriended a coach named Ken Ship. And this is what Haberstam writes about their relationship. Belichick was also enormously impressed with Ken Ship, who had a very original mind and was one of the best offensive coaches of the era, Belichick later decided. He was an open man, one easy to deal with. Though Belichick's instinct was to coach defense, it was where he was pulled, as if by some kind of magnetic force. He was also beginning to understand that if you were going to coach defense, you had to master the offense as well. Otherwise, you were only half a coach. The more he knew about the offensive side and the way the people on the offensive side thought, the better prepared he would be coaching defense. So Belichick has found someone in Ken Ship that can teach him aspects of the offensive side of the ball, the way that offensive people think. And if Belichick can figure out how offensive people think, he's going to create a better defensive situation. Later uh, in the book, Haberstein goes on and he continues on this point about understanding both sides of the ball, having an internal red team of sorts, so you can consider the full picture to get an accurate picture. When he, this is Belichick, first got together with Adams on the Giants, the two of them would often run laps around the field after practice, and he would tell Adams that he did not understand how some of the other coaches in the league had decided they were only going to understand one side of the ball, offensive specialists who did not master the defensive side, and defensive coaches who seemed to have equally little interest in the offense. That absolutely amazed him. He had made it his business to know both. So here again we see Adams and Belichick trying to figure out what the full picture is, having a deep, deep understanding of the game. Later in his career, this would get Belichick into some hot water, not because of the actual uh, process, not because of the skill of understanding both sides, but his application of this uh, skill. When Bill Belichick ended up in Cleveland to coach the Browns, he had a quarterback there named Bernie Kosar. And Halberstam explains that Kosar was basically a favorite son of Cleveland. Uh, he grew up 90 miles away. He had gone to the University of Miami in Florida, but had come back. He had the Browns uh, at a certain tier of success that the fans were dying. They were, the fans were hoping uh, they would succeed, and Kozar would be the one that pushed them over the edge. But when Belichick got there, he had been coaching against Kozar for a number of years as an assistant with the New York Giants. And he knew that Bernie Kozar was closer to the end of his career than the beginning. So this idea of red teaming, this idea of seeing both sides, seeing Kozar's weaknesses as an opponent, and then looking at his strengths as a coach, gave him a very clear picture. This is from the book. Belichick who was particularly skilled at seeing the weakness of the opposing offense and the vulnerability of opposing quarterbacks, understood all too well how the better defenses in the league now saw his own quarterback and offense. He thought almost everything about the Browns needed to be changed as quickly as possible. The team looked good on paper if you did not look too closely, and it had been in a conference championship game three out of the last four years in 1986, 1987, and 1989, but it had not won any of them Teams in the NFL, Belichick knew all too well, can age almost overnight. 
and Belichick ended up cutting Bernie Kosar because he thought he was far too weak. And the way he went about that was poorly done, which Belichick admitted in hindsight. Um, but it was ultimately the right decision. And part of the reason he knew it was the right decision is because it was an, uh, a view he had from the outside. He had both sides of the picture about why Kosar was a good quarterback and why he wasn't. Ironically, this same situation played out when Belichick went to coach the New England Patriots when he had a coach there named Drew Bledsoe who was really good um, but Bledsoe was on the downhill side of his career much like Kosar was and Belichick had a backup named Tom Brady that had been playing well and had the potential to be great. This is what Haberstam writes about that. Such doubts, that is, doubts about whether Drew Bledsoe could continue to play at an elite level, were magnified with Belichick, who had specialized in one thing for almost 25 years, discovering and exploiting the weaknesses of opposing quarterbacks. Because he had coached against Bledsoe and coached with him, he felt he knew the quarterback's strengths and weaknesses exceptionally well. Most quarterbacks dislike rushes and blitzes from the outside because they usually come from their blind side. But against Bledsoe, because he was so tall and needed so much space to set up, the inside rush was unusually effective, bothersome to the quarterback himself, and resulted in, among other things, a surprising number of tipped balls. So we see here, because Belichick has uh, experience with different teams playing against different people, he sees the other side of an angle. But that's something that you and I have a hard time with because we don't see the other side. If we're arguing a point in a business meeting, we don't often have the time or the effort or the energy or the insight to ask, what's the other perspective of this? How do we know that the other side isn't true as well? When I wrote my book on failed startups, I realized that you can be really smart and fail at a startup. You can have funding from some of the smartest venture capitalists and still fail as a startup. You can have a product that sounds really cool and gets a lot of buzz and a lot of press, and you can go to marketing events and you can still fail as a startup. You have to ask the opposite of um, what's going to happen. Rather than asking how does a startup succeed, you can ask how a startup fails and get a better idea. Rather than ask what makes this quarterback good, you can ask what makes this quarterback not good. Belichick got to see that because he switched teams and the players around the NFL moved, but you and I typically don't have, um, don't have those opportunities. We don't have those experiences presented to us in the, nor in the course of day-to-day -day business. We have to seek them out. And that's an idea that I'm going to be exploring in the future on this podcast and on the blog. Two. Another big part of the book that stood out with me was how relentless Belichick was, and especially toward the end when it talks about his time with the Patriots, how relentless Tom Brady was. This idea of relentlessness has really been enforced recently by the book Grit by Angela Duckworth. And in that book, Duckworth looks at what makes people who succeed succeed. What are the inputs? What are the verbs? What is it that people do that helps bring them success? And one thing that Duckworth found was that it wasn't the intensity of what they do, but the consistency of what they do. They have to get up every day and do the same thing over and over again. They have to practice the piano, they have to write, they have to lift weights, they have to make cold calls. Whatever the thing you want to succeed at, 
you have to do that thing every day. And that's this idea of grit, about consistency, about relentlessness. And that's something that was certainly true of Bill Belichick and his experiences. Belichick grew up and he played high school football and he played, um, he had a a postgraduate high school year where he played at a prep school. He played a little bit in college, but his thing was that he never played big time football and he wasn't that big of a guy. So he had to find an edge that he could coach players with. He wasn't older than uh, some of the players that he coached in the NFL. So Belichick wanted to find a thing that he did better than people so that when people came to him, they understood that he had an authority in some area. And the area he chose was film study. Belichick was a master at breaking down film. He was relentless in breaking down film. He was consistent in his worth ethic about breaking down film. When he was in Detroit, he befriended Ken Ship, but he also uh, befriended a guy named Floyd Reese. And Reese was one of the fellow coaches there. And this is what Halberstam wrote about um, what Reese told him about Belichick. In Detroit, he befriended Reese, and because they lived only three blocks from each other, they went back and forth to work every day, talking football all the time. They had dinner together every night and became close in the way that young men filled with the same dreams and ambitions become close. What struck Reese then and later was the discipline and the eagerness to learn. Belichick just worked harder than everyone else. I think a lot of it came from the fact that he had not played big-time football, and because of that, he felt he had to work twice as hard as anyone else to prove himself to prove his bona fides, Reese said. The work ethic, Reese said, was almost unique. Everyone there worked hard, but Belichick seemed to work harder than the others. He was someone who simply was not going to be denied. He was not very different back then when he was just starting out than he is as the coach of a team that has won three Super Bowls, Reese said. So from the earliest days, Belichick is a hustler. He is relentless. He is a hard worker. And he is this because he has to be. He doesn't have, um, he doesn't look like an NFL coach. He doesn't have a commanding presence. This was part of the reason he failed in Cleveland as well, Halberstam guesses, is that he had just come from the New York Giants where Bill Parcells uh, was the head coach and Parcells was standoffish with the media. He, uh, Gabe as well as he got, and Belichick tried to recreate that, but that's not the person he was. The person that Belichick was was a hustler. He was a grinder. He was a worker. He was someone who was just not going to be denied. I'm guessing part of the reason that Belichick and Tom Brady have succeeded together as a pair is that Tom Brady is like this too. Halberstam is very clear in the book with quotes from Scott Peoria and others that the New England Patriots locked into getting uh, Tom Brady. That was uh, not something that was a skillful decision. In fact, Scott Peoria, Peoria keeps a picture of Bill uh, or Tom Brady right next to a picture of the guy he drafted in front of him, a guy who would not play in the NFL, a guy whose name we won't even mention because of how inconsequential he was. So luck matters, but in Brady, they found someone that was uh, very hardworking. They found someone who was as intense with his interest in improving as much as Belichick was. This is what Haberstam writes. But here was Brady during his off hours, behaving as if there were no off hours. He always sitting in a small room, studying film, comparing it with the playbook, which he already had mastered. He did it in an interesting way, Adams thought. That's Ernie Adams. Some players might have done it noisily to show how hard they were working, but Brady was as unobtrusive as possible, as if this 
or a private thing he was doing as quietly as possible, sneaking into a tiny office and burying himself in front of the film. Tom Brady was so intent on getting better, he would run practice drills after hours. In fact, the custodial staff at the practice facility had to ask the coaches if it was okay that somebody was running around after hours, that it was all right someone was there without their supervision. And it wasn't as if Tom Brady was just going through the motions about calling plays like he was in a sandlot pickup game. He was running the actual playbook. Halberstam explains that he would have a center there, and he would have practice squad receivers, and he would call out plays as if he was on the line of scrimmage, and the receivers were expected to run the things that were in the playbook. This intensity that Belichick and that Brady have have brought them a lot of great rewards, whether it's financial or professional or achievements or external um, praise, but it also has a cost to it. And this is something that we've touched on recently on the podcast too. And it's the limits of being great at something, the limits of being an expert. In his book, Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell popularized the idea that 10,000 hours is what you need to become world-class at something. And Gladwell has pointed out, and I've referenced over and over, that he didn't include that as instructional. He included it almost more like a warning. If you're going to be great at 10,000 hours, you can't do other things. You can't mow the lawn. You can't cook your food. And in some ways, you can't have a relationship. That's true for Belichick. He ended his marriage of 25 years in an amicable way, Haberstam explains. But um, he did it because it's really hard to be married and to be a football coach. And he's not the only one that this is true for. Halberstam tells a uh, story about Bill Walsh. And Walsh has taken his wife out to a very nice restaurant uh, in the Bay Area on a Friday night. And he's sitting there and his wife looks over at him. And he, she sees him with that far-off look on her face. And she says, what is it, Bill? Third and eight? <laughs> and this story uh, just exemplifies how invested uh, coaches are to be great, how competitive it is and how much time and effort and energy and thought that it takes to be great at, at NFL coaching. And it takes that to be great at a lot of things. Halberstam writes, quote, there was no off season, though there was a brief soft season, a few weeks in the spring or early summer after the draft when a coach might try to emulate a normal workaholic schedule. So to be great, at coaching in the NFL. It requires a huge time commitment. And if you commit to that, you don't have time for other things. Bill Belichick is a great football coach. He's probably a great public speaker. He's probably a great leader. But those are the only things he'll be great at. He won't be a great father in maybe the traditional sense of the guy who shows up to all the sporting events. He won't be a great husband. He won't be a great philanthropist. He won't be a great member of a church or an organization. And he won't be part of a bicycle club that goes riding on Saturdays. There's a lot of things Bill Belichick won't. And he's fine with his trade-offs. But it's interesting to think about. And it's worth thinking about that there's only so much time in a day. There's only so many hours in a week that if you want to devote your hours to being great at something, it takes a lot of hours. And in doing that, you can't be great at other things. It's a conscious choice that we all should be aware of if we're going to relentlessly work toward a goal.
three. Howard Marks says that there are two ways to make a successful investment. You have to be different and you have to be right. And in this idea of being different and being right is something that Peter Thiel calls finding secrets. You have to find things that other people either don't believe are true or haven't looked for, and those things have to be valuable. Hopefully this podcast is in some way finding secrets where there's not anything else like this. So it's different in that we look at a book or a person and we try to extract value out of their lives. So it's different. Whether or not it's valuable is up to the listener to determine. Belichick had a couple instances of finding secrets in his coaching career. One was conditioning. When he was with those same Detroit Lions in the early days, he was paired up with someone who had just gone through some... uh, some physical training exercises. He was going to be a trainer for a professional sports team, or at least he hoped he would. But it wasn't always like that. This is what Haberstam writes. Quote, In those days, when the game was just becoming truly professional, no one arrived at camp in shape. The salaries were not that good, and most players had off-season jobs. End quote. He goes on to uh, quote Floyd Reese, who says, if someone ran 100 yards during the offseason, that was unusual. So here we have this secret in that uh, this sport is growing. It's getting larger. It's a zero-sum game. So the more that you can capture, the less someone else is going to capture. It's a very competitive environment. And there's an edge out there. If you have your players come back in better shape, that's a secret. That's something that you can embrace. And that's something that the Detroit Lions did during Belichick's time there. Another secret that he found was film study. People didn't expect to come that prepared for a game. They didn't expect to have a detailed understanding about what the other team was going to do. There's a story in Tom Coughlin's book about how Coughlin would often have or he would always have this report available for the team that they were playing that week. And it said, on uh, third down with this many yards to go, the team does X. And on third down with this many yards to go, the team does Y. And he had this one player that was always griping about having to learn these figures. That This player was always saying, oh, um, you know, why don't we just go out and play and react and, and figure it out in the moment? And then, then this player ended up being uh, part of another team later in his career, and he got to a meeting where this was typically gone over with the Giants, and he asked where their information was, and the guy said he didn't have it. And it was at that point the player realized, oh, this kind of scouting was really valuable. That was something that helped us a lot. A third secret that Belichick found was the idea of finding value in players and constructing your team within the range of a salary cap. When Robert Kraft bought the New England Patriots, he only did so after the salary cap was instituted. And he said he wouldn't have done it uh, without a salary cap because then it was only uh, whoever was going to spend the much money was going to get the most valuable players or was going to get the players that people thought were best. But with a salary cap, the idea of figuring out value was much more important. And this is an idea we've seen before about the importance of finding value rather than the absolute price of something. Charlie Munger likes to say that any damn fool can go to the racetrack, look at the horse with the best winning record and the lightest jockey, and say, well, that horse is going to win. But when it comes to putting your money down, that horse might pay 3 to 2, whereas a long shot pays 100 to 1, and then it's harder to figure out where the real value is. Belichick and Scott Pioli 
and to some extent Robert Kraft, who seemed to be very interested in the process, figured out that value is a secret. If they can evaluate players better, then they're going to be the ones who are able to succeed more. They're going to be winning more games in this zero-sum environment. The way that they looked at this, this idea of finding value, is they looked for players on teams where they weren't being utilized the best. They found Corey Dillon from the Cincinnati Bengals, and they got Dillon for a relatively low-value draft pick because Dillon had some problems in his past. He had a reputation that may not have been accurate among other coaches in the league. He was a player that was required to do a lot on a team that didn't have a lot. They had a slew of draft picks in 2001 and free agent signings that were all value picks. Richard Seymour and Matt Light were both drafted in 2001, and they got free agents like Mike Vravel, David Patton, and Joe Andruzzi in free agency. And they got all those players for relatively cheap because they were either playing behind really talented linebackers at another place like Mike Vrabel was in Pittsburgh, or uh, they signed these talented offensive and defensive players out of the draft because they weren't flashy positions, so there wasn't a lot of attention devoted to them. They found value when they looked at Drew Bledsoe replacing Tom Brady after a brief injury. And they thought that maybe Bledsoe wasn't going to be the best fit on their team, especially when they had Tom Brady, because Bledsoe took up a lot of salary on the salary cap, and he wasn't producing an equivalent amount. In fact, later on, Belichick decided that you really want to spend your higher draft picks on people that are exceptional, either in talent or skill, whereas talent is more innate. Uh, skill is something that can be taught. So if you pick highly, you need someone that is in the 99th percentile for something that you can't achieve on your own. So typically they would spend those draft picks on skill position players who had good hands, that is catching skills that couldn't be taught, rather than a lineman who could be taught how to block. Four. Belichick's career also had a lot of luck involved, a lot of good luck and a lot of bad luck. We've looked at luck before because figuring out what is luck and what is skill is really important as far as making sure you have the right process. If you define your process based on something that is luck-based rather than skill-based, we compare that to misreading a hiking sign in the woods and following the wrong path where you think you're going to one destination but you're really going to another. One example of luck that played a huge role, huge role in Belichick's life was his dismissal from the Cleveland Browns. This is what Haberstam writes. Years later, it struck Belichick that he and Kosar met at the wrong moments in each other's life, and that what happened, the confrontation, might have been avoided with a little bit of luck. It was a little bit of luck because if the Browns had just been a hair less successful, then Belichick's dismissal of Kosar would have maybe gone over a little better. Or if the Browns had been more successful, maybe he would have hung on to Kosar and taken a different path and still been in Cleveland. Belichick was also unlucky when he replaced Kosar with Vinny Testaverde. Uh, Testaverde got injured after only a few games and uh, Kosar 
rejoin the team, and he had to deal with the quarterback replacement over and over again. He got unlucky because Art Modell got in financial trouble and had to move the football team to a different city. There's a lot of luck that's involved in situations like professional football or investing in the stock market or a whole host of other things that we recently talked about on the Michael Mobison episode 32 of this podcast. The idea reminds me of this scene from Back to the Future 2. Obviously, the time continuum has been disrupted, creating this new temporal event sequence resulting in this alternate reality. English, Doc. Here, here, here. Let me, let me illustrate. Imagine that this line represents time. Here's the present, 1985, the future, and the past. Prior to this point in time, somewhere in the past, the timeline skewed into this tangent, creating an alternate 1985. Alternate to you, me, and Einstein, but reality for everyone else. The big idea with this is to remember that there's a whole host of outcomes. There's a whole slew of spots on the roulette wheel that the ball doesn't land into. And if you think about what those other options are, you can start to think about whether or not your situation uh, was one determined by skill or determined by luck or most likely determined by a mix of those two things. You need to figure out as the branches of possible future outcomes splits at each decision, whether or not your decisions are leading in the direction you want and if they're not, whether that is a skill and decision-making problem or whether that is a luck or randomness problem. One way that we make this mistake is we attribute skill when there was randomness or randomness where there is skill. In Belichick's case, it came in a, an a AFC championship game against the Denver Broncos where it looked like the New England Patriots were going to go ahead and win and Champ Bailey intercepted the ball in the end zone and ran it back 100 yards to the other team's one-yard line and the Patriots ended up losing the game. That was one moment where there was a small mistake in decision-making from the quarterback Tom Brady. But just because they lost the game, we shouldn't judge their process of preparation as one of mistakes. It wasn't necessarily bad process. It was just a bad outcome thanks to bad luck or randomness. Another thing we can think about is the idea of reversion to the mean when there's a lot of luck involved. If you're in a situation where extreme outcomes tend to revert back to a mean, then you're probably in a situation where a fair amount of uh, luck exists. If I play Serena Williams in tennis, and I don't play tennis, but if I were to happen to play Serena Williams in tennis, she would win every single time. There's no doubt about that. The difference um, in her skill and my skill and the amount of skill needed in tennis is so uh, disparate. There's so much distance between those two things that there's no way that I would win. Whereas when Serena Williams plays another elite tennis player, uh, their difference in skill is much smaller. And so luck starts to have a larger role. I looked in this in the last episode of this podcast, episode 34, when we talked about uh, making predictions in the NFL. And 
we said that part of making good predictions is to figuring out mean reversion, figuring out when luck plays a role. And in that episode, we talked about how the current Denver Broncos, the 2015-2016 Denver Broncos, are probably not going to be as good because their outcome in close games was... uh, heavily weighted toward wins when we would expect it to be more uh, weighted towards wins and losses. That is, the Denver Broncos had a winning record, a high winning record in close games, when we would expect them to be about 500. That is the same number of wins and losses in close games. Overall, I really like David Halberstam's book about Bill Belichick. It talks about his early career, but the second half of the book is as much Bill Belichick as I think you can find. And it has a lot of valuable ideas, like separating skill from luck and finding secrets. And some other things that we didn't talk about in this episode, like the value of partnerships and culture and top-down engagement and how incentives matter and when you can make a mistake with pattern recognition. Thanks for listening to episode 35 of Mike's Notes. Thank you very much. Now, why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? It's leave, you idiot. Make like a tree and leave. You sound like a damn fool when you say it wrong. All right, then, leave and take your book with you.